Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Waiteka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, hi, everybody, and happy Monday to you wherever you may be. Thank you so much for joining me today with my guest, lawyer and author, Kathleen Stone. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Oh, hi, Marcia. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is it is my honor, truly. Um, you are quite an amazing woman, and I think that our listeners are going to be very interested in what you've written about and your and your life because you've done a lot in your life. So I thought the best way to get started is to to know who you are. So please tell us just a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure, um, I am a lawyer by training. Um, I spent many years as a litigator uh, handling business and commercial cases. I was born in Boston and that's where I live, right right in the city of Boston. Um, I'm married. My husband also is a lawyer and we have an adult son who lives in Vermont. Um, For me, writing is a second career. Um, But Interestingly, my background as a lawyer is also relevant to what I write about in my book that's just come out. That's that's great. And, you know, I must say, I, I cannot be the first one that's saying this to you. You're from Boston. That's your home. Yes. Okay, yes. you know what I'm about to say, right? <laughs> I don't sound like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm thinking, wait a minute. You're born in Boston? I don't I don't hear that. And but I must tell you where you live, the eastern seaboard, where your son lives, I I think there's nothing more beautiful, particularly in the fall. For those of us who were born and raised on the west coast, you don't have any idea what fall foliage is like unless you go to where you are during the fall. But I think Boston's beautiful year round, so I think it's I think where you live is really, really cool. So um but no, I don't hear an accent. Okay. That's <laughs> just a side note. Um, I want people to know and I and I think this is really important because we're not looking at one another, which I wish we were, but that's just not the technology of today. I have a lot of friends whose names are Kathleen. Some spell it with a C. Some spell it with a K. In your case, you spell it with a K. But I also want people to know that if they would like to visit your website while we're talking or afterwards, that they can just simply type in Kathleen C, the letter C, Stone, just like the stone, S-T-O-N-E, dot com, and they can get over to your website. There's all kinds of interesting things there. There's newsletters. There's all kinds of things, you know, you can you can purchase a book through this website. So we're going to be talking a lot about your book. I I like the cover of it. I like I like when you say stories of female ambition from suffrage to madmen. I I think that's very clever, 
and um, I think we can delve in now to to hearing about your book. So so we're going to be talking a lot about your book, but just kind of tell us a little bit about your book to get us started. Uh, sure. Well, this is my first book, um, and it just came out this month. And it's very exciting to be a debut author after having well, congratulations. had a completely different career. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, the book fits into probably two categories, women's history and biography. It's a collection of biographical portraits of seven women who had careers in male-dominated professions in the mid-20th century. And by male-dominated, I mean careers like medicine, law, and science. They may not be so male-dominated these days, but in the 1940s, 50s, and early 60s, when these women went into their careers, they most certainly were dominated by men. Um, And so I interviewed these seven women when they were in their 80s and 90s to find out why they decided they should do something that was so unusual as to go into one of these careers and how they pulled it off. And so that's really was the, the quest behind my book and it ended up in these seven biographical portraits. I just love that. How did you, how did you even get the idea to, to do this to start with? Oh, that there's a long history behind well, it. Well, I've um, we got an hour. Go ahead. Okay. Um, the I began researching the book more than ten years ago, and by research I mean the interviewing the women. That was really my primary source of research, and then I did a lot of secondary research about the historical period of everything from the 1920s to the 1970s. Um, because for me, biography really has a dual function. It's a way to learn about individual lives, but it's also a way to see, to to learn history and to understand history. So for me, the book, um, I, I like to think that the book introduces readers to women who had really interesting lives but also shows us a slice of 20th century history. So my research was both learning about these individual lives and learning about the historical context. But the idea for the book really really Mm -hmm. started much earlier. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm I'm excited and I tend to do that. So I, because I I think your background um, is similar to my background in that, you had a you had a stay at home mom, right? I did. Yeah, I grew up um, in a, a nice middle class suburb mm-hmm. where most of the women, like my mother, were at home taking care of the children, and that's what. When I was young, that's the world that I knew. Uh, except there was one other little piece of evidence that I had, which is that my father was a lawyer. And I would occasionally look at the yearbook from his class in law school. He graduated in 1950. And I would look at the pictures. And I knew that there were a handful of women in his class. And those women intrigued me. 
I, I knew that they were doing something different because I didn't know any women lawyers in my neighborhood, but I knew that a few of them existed. I knew they were doing something that was unconventional, and it was a mystery to me why they thought they could or should do something like that. So I had this curiosity about them, even when I was quite young. Years went by. Years went by. I had my own career as a lawyer. But these particular women, and the idea that women had done something unconventional was still with me, and I was still curious about them. And I was also conscious um, that if I wanted to find out and actually talk to women of that generation, I couldn't wait forever. I had to do something <laughs> about it. Yeah. So, I, so that childhood curiosity was a springboard for my jumping into researching and writing the book. I think that's, that's so terrific. And I, maybe, I don't know if this was easy or not easy, but how did you actually decide on the title they called us girls? <laughs> um, well, first, it was both, it wasn't immediately obvious to me. And then once the light bulb went on, I realized, of course, <laughs> I should have known this all along. One of those mm-hmm. things, of course. The words they called us girls really come straight out of one of the interviews that I did. Um, One of the women in the book is now a federal judge. She was the first woman appointed to the federal court in Massachusetts. And I think she was appointed in in the late 1970s. And she's been Mm -hmm. on the court for more than 40 years. Wow. But when she graduated, she graduated from Harvard Law School in 1956. And when I interviewed her, her name, by the way, is Judge Rhea Zobel. When I interviewed Judge Zobel, she told me that when she graduated from law school, she could not get a job with a law firm. Law Mm -hmm. firms in Boston were not hiring women. But, as she told me, we weren't women. We were called girls. Oh, wow. And when when I read the transcript from my interview with her, I realized, of course, that's it. Those words, they called us girls, crystallized her experience, her very specific experience, but it also epitomized the experience of many women. And essentially, at least at that time in history, women, the general expectation was that women would stay home and be the caretakers of the home and the children. Or if they were in the paid workforce, and many women were, in fact, in the paid workforce, they would not take so-called men's jobs. So there was this perception that no matter how intelligent or educated or well-trained and suited for a particular line of work a woman might be, she wasn't she wasn't up to it she wasn't she wasn't really capable of doing a so-called man's job so that's mm-hmm. that was really the impetus behind the title they called us girls yeah and and, and I'll just add something please i know that some, sometimes girls is used as an affectionate fun label or term sure. of address 
for young women. And sometimes if I'm with a bunch of my women friends, it might be, hey, girls, let's go have a glass of wine. You know, we might say something like that. And to men, I might say, hey, guys. But in this instance, that's not, it wasn't that affectionate, fun kind of title. It was more of a, really a putting down of women's capabilities. It's, it's really interesting what you just said because as you're speaking, I'm thinking about those words because words matter. And we used to call ourselves this group of women. We all had children that were within a year of each other. And we would have once a month girls' night out because mm-hmm. that's what we called ourselves. We were the girls. We were getting together. Much different context than what you're speaking about. And I think that that's, I'm really glad you said that because uh, I think that that is a significant difference as to who's labeling you as a girl. And therefore it's almost, you know, I don't want to say it's a put down, but it it, it has a different connotation to it. So um, I, I appreciate that. But I also like... Kathleen, I also like the subtitle of your book, which is Stories of Female Ambition from Suffrage to Mad Men. And it refers to ambition, specifically female ambition. So let's talk about that. Does ambition have to have a negative connotation in your mind? Uh, No, it doesn't have to, although it often does. But I'm glad you brought up the subtitle because there's really, I think I packed a lot into that subtitle. Uh There's the the concept of ambition, but there's also, as you said, from suffrage to madmen. And I use those terms to really give a a time period, to define a time period. And from suffrage to madmen, is a way for me to indicate that I'm talking about a span of about 50 years. From 1920, when, of course, the 19th Amendment was ratified and women's suffrage became a reality, until about 1970, which is really about when the fictional TV show Mad Men ends. So by talking about suffrage to Mad Men, I'm defining the 50-year period from 1920 to 1970. In 1920, there was a historic high for the number of women who were in higher education and going into professional fields. It then leveled, women's rate of being involved with higher ed in professional fields then leveled off for those 50 years. It was either a flat growth curve or it sometimes was a negative growth curve until 1970 when there was once again a big upswing in the number of women in college and graduate school and going into professional work. So I was trying to get the the reader interested in what what was going on in that time period. But now back to your question about ambition and a negative connotation. If you look it up in the dictionary, the word is defined as something like a strong desire to achieve something like 
fame or fortune. So -hmm. there's nothing inherently wrong with fame or fortune, but it's, I think, a, a very narrow definition of ambition. And in fact, that's not what I found among these women who I interviewed. None of them went into the careers they did in order to achieve either fame or fortune. Instead, they were, they were really interested in the substance of the work, either taking care of patients or serving clients through the law or being an artist or running a social service agency. Those are the kinds of jobs they did. None of them got hugely wealthy or hugely famous from doing it. And, that's, and that really wasn't their motivation. But it was a, for them, it was really a conscientious pursuit of the substance of the work. And there's something else about these particular women that I found, which is that they all had a sense of purpose that was greater than themselves. Most hmm. of them, in one way or another, were working to serve others. Certainly a doctor is serving others. Yes. Uh, and even even the woman who was a physicist, who was discovering, ma- making great discoveries in the scientific field, was very conscious in pointing out to me the practical effect of scientists' work and how it benefits our society in general, the kinds of discoveries that then get turned into practical, useful products. Um, So I think they were all aware of the way their work affected others in a positive way. So after meeting these women and talking to them about what fueled their career decisions that really helped me rethink what ambition is. Mm -hmm. And um, it also, for me, took away the negative connotation so that I was then felt free to use the term female ambition in the subtitle to the book, being free of any negative connotation. That That makes sense to me, that explanation. I am really curious, and I'm sure others are as well, and that is, how did you find these women to interview to start with, and why did you choose these particular seven women to include in your book? Oh, sure. Um, Well, when I decided that I wanted to pursue this project, I resurrected this curiosity (laughs) that I, I had when I was a little girl. Um, my first step was to do some research in women's history of the 20th century in general to really get to get a feel for the landscape. And I, I read books and I did research on the Internet. And in the process of doing that, I came across a couple of women who I did end up interviewing um, because either they were, there were articles about them or they were on lists of women who were first of doing something or other. Um, so the research, the general research, narrowed down in a couple of instances to specific interviews. But the, I found even more productive was 
using my personal network and getting mm-hmm. referrals to women. Um, for instance, I went to a conference in New York many years ago, and somebody I met there during the cocktail hour asked me what I was working on, and I explained, and she said, oh, you really must interview this doctor in Harlem. And she told me about Dr. Muriel Petioni. And she then volunteered to make an introduction, and she did, and that resulted in an interview. Um, Another friend here in Boston, every time I would run into her, she'd say, have you talked to Mildred Dresselhaus yet? And Mildred Dresselhaus was the scientist I referred to earlier. She was a professor at MIT. And for some reason, my friend had read about Mildred, and she she didn't make and she didn't know her. She didn't make an introduction, but she pointed me toward Mildred Dresselhaus, and that resulted in another interview. So, to some extent, um, my first, my network um, really came mm-hmm. in handy, um, and gave me suggestions, and also made a couple a couple times I needed an introduction to somebody who I knew I wanted to interview, but I needed to have some help opening the door, and so that my network helped me do that. Um, I'm, so I'm, why these, yes, go ahead. I so say, why go these ahead. particular seven? Yes. I was looking for, well, my first criteria was age. I was looking for women who were of my, basically my mother's vintage. And my mother had passed away by the time I started this project, but I was looking mm. for women who were of, of her generation. And I was looking for women who had gone into male-dominated careers. And within that, I was looking for a diversity of careers. I did end up with two doctors, but they they came at the subject of medicine in very different ways. Um, But beyond that, I was looking for different kinds of careers, different backgrounds. One woman grew up in a great deal of poverty. Another grew up in in fairly privileged circumstances. I was also looking for racial and ethnic diversity. So those were sort of my general parameters. And the other thing about these seven, they all had really interesting lives. I don't think there's one life story that wasn't full of surprises or unexpected twists or great challenges and perseverance. So every one of them turned out to have a really interesting story behind them. I'm thinking about what you're saying, and I'm trying to put myself in your position as somebody that interviews and asks questions, but also in their position and what it must have been like for them to be part of this project that turned into a book that included them. They didn't know each other. But no, they, they had, didn't. No, they sure didn't. But they, um, but they shared something that was common to them. And, and, and I think that to wrap your arms around that and to tell the stories, which I have to tell you, I'm a story collector myself. I believe everybody has stories. I, I am I'm completely convinced of that. Not everybody wants to tell their story, 
Not everybody's interested in your story. I get that too. But if you are curious about humanity, then to me, it's just sort of an, an obvious segue. So what's your story? I mean, that's what's on my shirt. That's what I, you know, what's your story is what I've been asking people for seven years. I'm beginning my eighth year in just another couple of weeks. So what's your story is to me, uh, it, it makes sense what you're saying, Kathleen, that you wanted to, to blend these people and to bring these um, women together. But can you give us sort of an idea of the environment that the women faced when they began their careers? Because, you know, we we weren't around during those days. No, we weren't. Um, <laughs> but I do have, I can I can give you an idea of the environment. Um, sure. But I just want to follow up on something you were just saying about how everyone has a story. Absolutely true. And, of course, my focus with these particular women was their career decisions and right. what, where, that, what, where that ambition came from. But in a way, it's even more, you could look at it in a, even a more universal way. You know, they were growing up in a historical context, as we all do, and they were trying to meld what they saw in their surroundings and what they saw in the historical context that they were in and how they melded that with their personal sense of self that they were developing as girls and young women and what they wanted to do with themselves. And I think that's a quest that we all go through mm-hmm. as we try to make sense of the world that we're, we find ourselves in. So it's, it's an even broader, you, you can look at what I was doing in an even broader way, um, mm-hmm. although obviously they called us girls, does so have a very particular focus. Um, yes. And the title, in a way, as I said, does sort of sum up, in a way, the environment that these women faced when they began their careers. Um, in the 40s and 50s, women represented less than 5% of all the doctors in the country and significantly less than 5% of the lawyers in the country. So that gives you an indication of, you know, the kind that women just were not in those kinds of fields. Um, there was no legal protection against sex discrimination. Sex discrimination was perfectly legal. Employers recruited on the basis of sex and also on the basis of age. Um, you know, of course, this was long before any kind of online hiring um, and employers would run ads in the newspaper for job openings, and jobs were differentiated between men's jobs and women's jobs. Uh, and, and that was all perfectly legal at the time. So there really was right. a, great, a great deal of differentiation on the basis of sex. Um, and, the, and there was a, a strong feeling that women simply didn't belong in certain jobs. And typically, at least to some extent, some of the jobs that women were perceived as not belonging in were those with higher pay or where they would exercise more authority over their work or where they would have more of a sense of agency. Um, Those were just jobs that women very often were thought not to belong in. Um, And the thinking was also that 
why bother to train a woman to do a certain job if she was just going to have babies and stay home? She would, you know, in the training process or in the educational process, she was really taking up a place that should have gone to a man. Wow. So, but more specifically, um, you know, I mentioned, I think, Muriel Petioni earlier. She was a doctor um, who eventually made her career in Harlem. When she graduated from medical school, she was the only woman in her class. Hmm. Mildred Dresselhaus, the woman who was the scientist at MIT, she was in a PhD program in physics at the University of Chicago in the late 1950s. Her advisor told her that women didn't belong in the program at all. Wow. Hmm. Um, Cordelia Hood another one of the women in the book, was an intelligence analyst. She began her career during World War II working for the Office of Strategic Services. And after the war, she worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. But when she, and she was highly qualified for the job. She was fluent in German, and she had spent a couple of years in Europe where she had, in fact, encountered the Nazis before the war began. She knew exactly what she was up against. She was highly qualified to do the work. But before she could start her job at OSS, she had to pass a typing test. And only the women were being asked to show that they could type. The men were not. And and in fact, she used the word girl. She said the typing test was reserved for girls. Hmm. So that gives you some idea of the kind of environment the women faced when they began their careers. How would you say that that compares to what women are facing today? Well, I think we've made a lot of progress. I don't think we blink today when we meet a female doctor or a lawyer or a scientist or an executive. Um, So we really are in a different moment. Some of these women of course, were born even before women were permitted to vote. They were born before the 19th Amendment. And they all came of age before any of the civil rights legislation in the mid-1960s. So the moment then is quite different from today. You know, the, the legal landscape certainly has improved. I... I think there, there clearly are still issues for, to, that need to be confronted for, in order for women to be fully successful in the workplace. Some of that has to, in my opinion, has to happen in private conversations at home. I still think we need to reckon with the idea of who does what on the home front and what the implications are for women. And I think we see that now quite acutely with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. When children were out of school and at home and needed supervision to stay tuned into their Zoom classroom or do their homework or whatever needs to be done, I think a lot of women either cut back on their work or dropped out of the workforce entirely in order to be the ones who took care of the children in in that setting. And sometimes that is 
is either a, just an, maybe sometimes even an unspoken assumption within the family that that will be the woman's role. Mm-hmm. And, of course, some women want to do that, and I don't mean to suggest that they shouldn't. But I also think that there are just unspoken assumptions about who does what within the household. I also think, and actually my husband and I have talked about this, if you know, our son is 30 years old, but if he had been a young child during the pandemic, how would we have coped and would I have stopped working? And I might have because if my husband were the one with the higher income and one of us had to stop working, probably would have been me. And I think that was a decision for many women that they would, the man would keep his job with a higher pay. So to the extent that there's still a pay gap for comparable work, I think um, still puts women at a disadvantage when push comes to shove, as it certainly did during the pandemic. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You, you, <clears throat> I know I was called, in quotes, the stay-at-home mom, and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. I didn't. I was a volunteer, but I didn't go to work and get a job job till my kids were off in college. And um and I but you hear now you hear the term oftentimes stay at home dad. And I yes. I think there's something to be said for that as well. And I also think that education has changed. We didn't know about STEM. We didn't know about a lot of different ways that young people boys and girls, um, were, were being educated when my kids and your son, I mean, my, my kids are a decade older than yours, but, if, you know, the education system has, has changed so dramatically. But when you talk about the women that you've mentioned that were born in the ten, 1910s, 20s, and early 30s, and they started their careers during the Depression, which I wasn't around to know about. I mean, I heard about it. Um, and others started their their careers during the Second World War, right after the war. That's a that's a huge swath of history. And I'm I'm tra- you, you're a researcher. I mean, that that goes without saying. You'd have to be a researcher to do what you've done because that's what started this for you. So how did, how did you decide what bits of history to include in the stories of their lives? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, tried, I tried to see what historical events were the most relevant to a particular woman. Um, I mean, they all lived through essentially the same time period, but different things had a different impact depending on the particular circumstances. Um, World War II is, an, is a great example. Um, one woman was named Dalib Ipkar. She was an artist and children's book author living in rural Maine and where she had moved in, actually during the middle of the Great Depression, she had moved to Maine with her then brand new husband. Um, when the war began, her husband was significantly older than she was, and he was too old to go into the military. 
So they stayed on their small farm in Maine. Uh, they continued to grow vegetables. They continued to milk their cows and sell their milk locally. Um, and listen to the news on the radio. The, the war had not a lot of impact on their daily lives. So in, in the chapter about Dala Vipkar, I mentioned the war, but it's not a big part of the chapter for her. Um, what happened in the art market was more relevant to her. Um, but for Cordelia Hood, the one who was the intelligence analyst, World War II was a pivotal event. Um, she, as soon as she heard the news about Pearl Harbor being attacked in 1941, she knew she wanted to go in to some kind of war-related work. She was passionate about trying to help the United States win the war. And she had the German language skills already. And she wanted to go overseas, which she did. She ended up in OSS in London and then in Bern, Switzerland. And so for her, uh, World War II launched her into the intelligence field, which she then continued after the war for the Central Intelligence Agency. So in the chapter about Cordelia, I spend some amount of time talking about the war and what happened and what the, the kind of work she did during the war. So, you know, the, the war, big pivotal historical event, was more or less important depending on who the woman was. Mm-hmm. Um, another example was Mildred Dresselhaus, again, the scientist from MIT. She was in her PhD program when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. That was in 1957. She told me that Sputnik was a game changer. Mm-hmm. It, it completely, the United States realized that it was behind in science and technology, and it began funding research in an unprecedented way. So in Mildred's chapter, I talk about Sputnik, um, not only the effect it had on her as a graduate student, but it was pivotal in her first job, uh, which was in a research lab that all of a sudden had funding for lots and lots of scientists that it hadn't had previously. Um, another example is uh, another one of the doctors was Dr. Martha Lee Powell. She graduated from medical school in 1952 when polio was still rampant in the United States. Yes. Uh, and she, she worked in, uh, for a while in what was called a virus lab where they were mm-hmm. studying the polio vaccine and actually learning how to cultivate the, I said they were studying the vaccine, I meant they were studying the polio virus. Right. In anticipation of working on a vaccine. Um, and they also were, learning to cultivate the virus because they needed huge quantities of the virus to use for the field testing of the vaccine. So she was very involved with that kind of research. So in her, again, in her chapter, I talk about um, polio and what a, you know, a monumental event that was in the 1950s. You know, the epidemics before the vaccine and then the coming of the vaccine. Yes. So for these different women, um, 
I, I emphasize different parts of history um, depending on what was most relevant to their, their lives and their careers. Was there anything that surprised you particularly about that as you did that research between that time? Yes. Um, a couple <laughs> things, I would say. Okay. Um, one is how strong the cultural message was that women were destined to be housewives. And that despite, and, you know, think about the, tel- the early television shows were the most, among the most popular shows were I Love Lucy and yep. Honeymooners and my personal favorite, Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> like, my Father Knows Best, all of those. That one too. Yep, yep. all of those. Um, and so that really sent a message of what women were supposed to be. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing that was surprising in these women's cases, and the reason I sought them out, was they ignored that. They went ahead and did something very different. I mean, of course, they had home lives, but they were not completely defined by their home lives. They had careers that gave them oh, a, probably a more layered self-definition. Yeah, and the other thing, I think I alluded to this before, the other thing, the, the fact that really surprised me was how in the decades just before 1920, there was a big upswing in the number of women in higher education and then going into professional jobs. But that leveled off after 1920. And that's, that's interesting. There was a cent- and for 50 years, until about 1970, there was essentially a plateau. The, the percentage of women in professional jobs was essentially unchanged for those 50 years. And, of course, mm. that's the very time period when the women in the book were going, were starting their careers. But that, the fact that the despite the fact that many more women were going into the paid workforce but not into professional careers, was to me one of the most intriguing facts I uncovered in my research. Wow. You know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. <clears throat> Did, do you think that the activism of the 60s and 70s um, have had an effect on these women's careers, had an effect on them? I do, I, I do think so. Um, all of them were really established in the careers by the time sort of second wave feminism, if we can call it that, began in the late 60s and the 1970s. So it didn't cause them to change careers in any way. But I think for some of them it opened new doors or it allowed them to um, become involved themselves in, in, in women's issues. Um, an example is Dr. Muriel Pettioni. Um, she, she was a, sort of born an activist. Her father was very much an activist in the Harlem community, which is where she grew up. And she was similar. Um, but, but the 1970s, provided some new opportunities for her. She told me that because by the middle of the 1970s, 
hospitals and other organizations were looking to hire black women doctors. And they, she was starting to receive calls from potential employers seeing was she interested in working for them or who could she refer to them. And she realized that she, she had an opportunity to broaden the message. And, uh, and she started a, a medical society for black women doctors in the greater New York area so that they would know one another, be resources for one another, and also referral sources. If Hospital A called and was looking for uh, you know, a pediatrician, who might they know within their group who was a pediatrician who might be interested in that job? So for her, the 1970s gave her an opportunity to sort of broaden, to use her already extensive network, broaden it and, and help younger women doctors who might be interested in those jobs. Um, for another, for Judge Rhea Zobel, the 1970s really is what allowed her to become a judge. Um, she's the one who, when she, she couldn't get a job in a law firm in the 1950s, um, but in 1978, but she did eventually get a job in a law firm 10 years later. Um, but then by 1978, President Jimmy Carter had the opportunity to appoint, I think it was something like 200 new judges to the federal bench. Um, and he made a real conscious effort to put more women and minorities on the bench. And because of his devotion to that cause, he, when he was appointing judges in Massachusetts, he wanted to appoint a couple of women, or at least one woman, and she was the one. So it was mm. partly Jimmy Carter, partly the 1970s, partly the fact that he wanted to further um, the civil rights effort that had begun in the 60s that for her emerged into an opportunity to become a federal judge. And before that, only a, really a small handful of women had ever been federal judges. That's interesting. You know, <clears throat> this could be a two-hour show, truly, because <laughs> so much of sure, what you okay. have to say is so is so is so important. And I'm just curious, um, was there, were there women that faced challenges that really didn't have anything necessarily to do with gender discrimination, but maybe had to overcome something else instead? Oh, yes, of course. Um, well, again, Dr. Muriel Petioni, um was a black doctor. She grew mm -hmm. up in Harlem. Um, she was the only woman in her, I've, I've already mentioned this, but she was the only woman in her medical school class at Howard University. A after her internship at Harlem Hospital, she went south and she worked at several um, historically black colleges and universities. And, she, and, and one of them was um, Alabama State in Montgomery, Alabama which, mm -hmm. as she told me, was the cradle of the Confederacy. Um, so she was there in the 1940s. Jim Crow segregation was not only legal but required. 
so she had to, um, you know, deal with the challenges of living in that kind of environment. Um, she also, when she returned to Harlem, which she eventually did in the 1950s, um, she had to deal with not legally required segregation, but nonetheless prejudice against black doctors, even in New York. Um, so she, she certainly had racial discrimination and prejudice to deal with, yes. um, which I think she did, she did very effectively by building strong bonds with other black professionals. She had seen her father do that. Um, and she, she, because she had worked at different um, historically black colleges, she, she had a very strong network herself, um, and she really used that as a platform when she returned to Harlem and became active in the community. Not only, and not only the Harlem community, but more broadly, she was very involved with other women's groups. Um, within the National Medical Association, she started a group for women doctors to talk about issues of concern to women doctors. She became involved with several organizations that award scholarships to girls who are interested in science and medicine to further mm -hmm. their studies. So um, she used some of those challenges, um, but in a way that was very productive for her and for others whom she encountered. Um, yeah. A completely <clears throat> different example of, yes, please. of a challenge was um, Dallas Ipcar, the artist. Um, she was, she had grown up in Greenwich Village. Both of her parents were prominent modern artists in the early decades of the 20th century. But when she was 18, she was newly married and moved to Maine. Um, so she was she had removed herself from the art scene. There was really no ongoing art scene in Maine at that time. So she she was, you know, away from the influencers and the promoters and the galleries and all. And the other thing that happened was that abstract expressionism became really the popular form of art. And that's not what she did. That's not what she was oh. interested in. So she had, so that she did work that was sort of, you, you could generalize and call social realism. Um, at least that's what she was doing at the time. But there was a real shift in taste away from that. And galleries weren't showing what she was interested in creating. And that's not what collectors were buying. She really had to reinvent herself. She had to find a new way to, to keep her, I mean, she could certainly paint for herself, but if she wanted to have a viable career as an artist, she needed to find a new avenue, which she did by becoming a children's book author. She, uh, her first foray into children's literature was as the illustrator for a book uh, written by Margaret Weiss Brown, oh. who became very well known for, yep. I guess, Good, Good Night Moon, among others. Yep. Um, so Dalla was the illustrator for one of Brown's books, and then she began writing her own books. And I think she published something like 30, 35 books for children. Mm. 
And in fact, that's how I first encountered her. Um, I, when my, my younger brother was little, somebody gave my family or gave him a book that Dolov had written and illustrated. And I remember hearing my parents read that book aloud to him. And that's when I first heard her name. And then 57 years later, I interviewed her. Huh. So, you know, so that was about a, a, full circle. a different kind of challenge. Yes. Um, do you think there were some significant factors that led to these women's success? I do. And, you know, it's obviously each formulation of success is different for each woman. Um, but there definitely are some things that overlap. And I guess what I'm about to say isn't really surprising, but nonetheless, to me, it's profound in a way. And I think one of the most important factors for every woman was family. And, and I yeah. mean that in, 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 in all their varieties. Um, mm mm-hmm. One woman grew up with in a great deal of poverty. I think I've mentioned that. Um, mm-hmm. But nonetheless, her family passed on values of hard work and striving. And I think all of the families did that. I mean, those very old-fashioned values of hard work and setting goals and trying to achieve was, was I think, true for all of them. Um, and you know, family is really where we learn stories about our forebearers and and about ourselves. It's how mm-hmm. one way we come to define ourselves, and and I think that was true in for all of the women, although in very different ways. Um, there are also families were also important in passing on a sense of optimism um, that if you set a goal of becoming a doctor or whatever, you can achieve it. And I think that despite all kinds of obstacles, either because of gender or race or poverty or whatever, um, there was a sense of optimism among all these women, which I think they got from their families. Um, I I like hearing that because it, it also makes me think that not only did they get this optimism that you just described from their families, but they passed that down through generations. I mean, what an interesting book would it be to um, take these these seven women and learn about their families? <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Is that is that something you're considering doing <laughs> down the line? You know, I hadn't thought about that, but that could be the sequel. <laughs> Don't you think? I love I mean, that idea. I, I, I'm curious. I, I mean, and I, I, get, I would I be did curious get to, to talk know. to some of the families. Yes. I definitely did talk to some of the family members. The uh-huh. other thing that I think was significant for women was education. Sure. Um, and uh, Dalit Ipkar is the only one who didn't graduate from college. But she grew up with two parents who were artists in the thick of the modern art scene in New York City. So that was, that was probably a better education than anything she would have gotten in school. But yes. for all of the other women, um, a co- either a college education or college plus graduate school was key to them getting to where they 
eventually got. Um, I bet. I want to I want to mention something because you had you and I had spoke about this off the air, and I think it's a very generous um, offer, and that is on your Kathleen C. Stone website, you um, have an introduction. And that introduction is available as a free download to anyone that signs up for your newsletter. And I'll make sure that people can see that. I'll, I'll, I'll include that in my blog, Kathleen, so that if people would like to um, see what that's like, they can, they can do that. And I think that what, what you're doing is, is significant. And those of us, you know, it's, it, you know, those of us that are, that, Maybe you know I don't have grandchildren, but for those that are out there that are influencing their 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 granddaughters and their and their children, because you know um, men live with women as well, and there needs to be a respect going both ways for what Absolutely. your sister or your wife or whomever your cousin, whoever that woman is is to you so that you can also be their champion. And I think that that's just another element of your book that I see that is so beneficial is that I see you writing like a champion for the, for the women that you've included. And I, I just, I, I'm, you know, I've given you an idea for another book, but um, what, what else do you see coming up in your future? Um, now that this book is congratulations by the way it's oh it hasn't even been out a full month yet so i'm sure these are very exciting times but what what's coming up next for you um they are exciting times and thank you um i'm hoping to continue doing some work in women's history um uh-huh maybe not another book right now but shorter works and essays i also want to go back to doing something that i've taken a little hiatus from as I was getting the book ready for publication, which is book reviews and art reviews. You know, I was an art history major in college, and I'm going to go back to, um, and I was writing some art reviews, and I'm going back to doing that, I hope, starting this spring and summer, and also mm-hmm. book reviews. In fact, I have mm-hmm. a book review to uh, that will be due in May, so I'm just um, starting to read that book for reviews. So, I, you know, book reviews and art reviews, make me, you know, if I'm reading the book or at the gallery looking at an exhibit, it makes me pay attention in a, I don't know, it just, it just perks up my interest and makes me pay attention because I know I have to be pro- enjoying it but also processing it in a way that I can write about it. And I sort mm-hmm. of like that challenge. So I think that's my short-term uh, plan. <clears throat> Well, one of the things that we just didn't get time to talk about as, we're, as we conclude this hour, but I have, I have mentioned it, I will mention it in my blog, is that you are also the founder and co-host of Book Lab, and I realize that that is significant to your, to your Boston area, but um, I will make sure that people know about that, Kathleen, so that if they have an interest in that, that they have an opportunity to learn more about that as well. And like I said, you're, you're, you've offered this opportunity for a free download um, for people about the introduction um, to your book. 
And I just want to just congratulate you, but to thank you for spending this time with me and 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 having this focus be on something that's so significant to you and where, you know, I have a relationship to this subject as well as I mentioned with my daughter and maybe others are saying the same thing and I I'm just really um appreciative for the time that that you've taken to share your story with others because I think that this is what life's all about anyway in my personal opinion. You know, it means a lot. Well, I love the opportunity to get these women's stories out into the world, and I appreciate your giving me that opportunity now. You're welcome. I could, you know, I could almost see this as a TED Talk. I, I could see you. I could see you on the stage. I can, I can visualize you on a stage. You're a speaker. You're, you're highly educated. And and you're and you're and you're passionate. The, I I feel all of that when you speak, and I could just visualize you doing that. You know, just standing in front of an audience and sharing those stories and what you've learned and how you've been and how you have been affected, and then how you turn around and affect others. I think that that's what makes this such a significant book and what makes you such an interesting guest, frankly. Oh, why, thank you so much. Well, it was my pleasure. It, it's, it, you know, we all have to find whatever it is that brings us passion. I mean, that, that is a reality. I, I love doing this every week. I love having the connections with many publicists that send me, like Rachel did, these, these amazing guests like yourself and and then sharing it you know not everybody's going to listen to a podcast but if you and i got something out of this it's worth it if people listen to it and share it with others all the better but when i hang up my hat at the end of the day and i say so how'd that feel i'm going to say it felt like a win it did well, it certainly did for me. Thanks to you. Well, great. That's even better now. We're both winners. Oh, my God. Well, I just, like I said, I want to thank you um, for for being with me today. And, and you know, maybe um, six months or a year from now when you decided to interview all these people's children, oh, let me know. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I just wish you the very best. And should I ever find myself in Boston, you can be certain I will give you a ring, all right? Absolutely. I will look forward to that. And should you find yourself in the Los Angeles area, I am just a drone's throw from the airport, so you're always welcome to visit oh. me as well. <laughs> so for Thank now... You. You're welcome. So for now, everybody, be safe. Have a good week. Do what you do. What you love. Spend some time doing what you love, because it just means the world when you can say, "I loved doing that." So for now, I'll say goodbye. Thank you once again, and I'll be back again next week. Bye for now, everybody. <laughs> 